0: I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, we are in for such a beautiful episode in today's podcast my guest is andrea lamar and andrea at least for me is this really really quiet calm powerful unbelievable force of nature Andrea works with social justice. She works with diversity issues and eating disorders. Andrea and I work on a few projects together through the Academy of Eating Disorders. She is a researcher that never seems to stop. We talk about multiple things in this episode. We talk about one thing that recovery does not come in a singular definition. And I think that's freeing. Freeing for clinicians. Freeing for people that are struggling. Freeing for people that are supporting somebody with an eating disorder. By the way, doesn't give you a hall pass to sort of pick and choose and say, this is my definition of recovery, meaning picking and choosing to keep behaviors. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that everybody is unique. So our recoveries look unique. We also talk about what I think is really fun, which is lack of certainty as a recovered person is inspiring. Now, as I use from my own experience, lack of certainty was petrifying when I was in my eating disorder. It is unbelievable how much we can grow in uncertainty. If we listen to ourselves, we pay attention to things around us, you will find what you're passionate about as a recovered person, and that is a gift of being recovered. I'm really excited for today's episode. I hope you all enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. We're in for another fabulous episode today. My guest on the podcast is Andrea Lamar. Andrea, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. It's it's morning here in New Zealand and happy to be chatting with you.
0: I, you know, I expect nothing less than for you to be sitting, sipping your coffee. It's four o'clock in the afternoon for me. I'm going to hold tight and still sip my water and, you know, do it that way. So again, thank you so much, Andrea. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? And then we'll get a little bit more into the podcast.
1: Sure, so currently I'm a lecturer in critical health psychology at Massey University here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I graduated from my PhD in 2018 um, at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Um, So I decided to make the big move around the world and I moved here in September, um, but a lot of my research has focused on eating disorder recovery, and generally from the perspective of people with lived experience, um, I do qualitative and arts-based work, and kind of try to understand people in their kind of relational context, as well as in their kind of broader social context. So, trying to go beyond um, what we think we know about recovery, and get into some some of the really kind of nitty-gritty of what recovery means, and you know how people feel about representations of recovery, and all that good stuff. So that's kind of the the main theme of my research. I do a bunch of other stuff around um, embodiment and um, you know just people in their lives and health psychology in general. But that's my kind of passion is eating disorder recovery.
0: Yeah, yeah. You do a lot of work. You do a lot of work with feminist and social justice perspectives and. Really, really powerful work. You know, it's interesting because you and I are members of an organization, the Academy of Eating Disorders. And within that, we're both involved in a special interest group, which is about professionals that are recovered. And one of the things that we've been trying to do as a community is come up with a definition of what is recovered. From your perspective, Andrea, how would you define being
1: recovered? I feel like this is the million dollar question. And um, I have been working on this question for years and years and years. And I've been living this question for years as well. And I feel like I, I never didn't tell have... you I didn't tell you this, but it's the main reason
0: why I asked you on the podcast. No, I'm, <laughs> kidding. I'm like, I know Andrea has been working on this for a really long time, everybody. So we're going to go right into it. Andrea. Define. Being recovered?
1: I feel like I'm going to be really disappointed because I don't have a singular answer. And I think lately, what I've been really talking and writing and thinking a lot about is this kind of idea of recoveries as plural and this isn't necessarily like me coming up with some brand new super exciting concept but it's me kind of drawing on what i've learned through um, personal experience through my research through involvement in um, activist and advocacy spaces of the idea that like perhaps in our pursuit of this singular truth about recovery we're actually limiting people's recoveries Um, so i think for me one of the most important things is that when we say recovery I don't think we're all talking about the same thing. And I'm, I'm not sure anymore whether that's a bad thing. I think at one point, I was kind of like very much on the side of let's try to get one definition that everyone agrees on. And increasingly, I'm not sure that that is possible or even desirable. Because what I found through talking to people is that when you predefine what you mean by recovery, and you create like a set of specific points that you need to hit, that could be something to aim toward. But it could also be constraining if somebody feels like they don't feel that way, but they feel pretty good in their lives. They might feel a little bit conflicted about whether or not they have, quote unquote, the right or the legitimacy to call themselves recovered. And I would hate for people to feel that way just because their lives are more complex than that singular definition would allow for. It is
0: such a powerful question. And as you were talking you know we've all in the field talked about the fact that everybody is unique so it is really kind of impossible to come up with one concrete definition everybody's personality traits are different their traumas are different their strengths and challenges are different like everybody is unique their eating disorder behaviors are different so how could we come up with one singular definition. And I do agree with what you're saying, which is I've had clients that have sat across from me and said, well, I still struggle with body image, so I must not be recovered. And I'm thinking, and I or I think, I don't just think, I say to them, hang on a second. You don't have to check off every single box in order to say that you're fully recovered. And everything is in sort of a gradation. That's the right word, gradation. And body image is not always a defining moment because people that have never had an eating disorder struggle with body image distress. Yeah. And
1: I think around that point, like people who live in bodies that aren't accepted by society aren't likely to be able to kind of claim that Kind of love of body or body image immediately. I mean, if they can, that's fantastic. I don't want to diminish that perspective or experience either. But if you're told every single day by society that your body doesn't fit or doesn't belong, or you know you're facing active violence toward your body, if you're a trans person or a black person or um, a person in a larger body or somewhere that fits all in between, or you experience a disability um, and you can't kind of claim that like normative social ideal, your body is literally you're being told that your body doesn't fit. And so of course it might be harder to kind of claim that space of body love. Um, So I think like we can't disentangle this idea of recovery from the broader social structures that keep people down and tell them that their bodies don't fit and tell them that their bodies are wrong. And I think like the way that we've carved out recovery has this kind of like happy, shiny rainbows perspective, but kind of doesn't, attend to that complexity um, enough, I wouldn't say. And so I think like, it makes sense to me when people have trouble claiming certain pieces of it at times, because of course they do, because society is a bit of a dumpster fire. (laughs) So I think... We, yeah, we need to be looking at this in context. like I think it's it's hard because it's useful and pragmatic to have a de- definition of recovery when you're writing about recovery or when you're trying to decide if someone's you know ready to step down to a low, lower level of care or you know if somebody um, can kind of be moving throughout their world without that extra support. But I mean, I think we all deserve support at all times first of all, um, and throughout our recoveries in a very like long term kind of way, but obviously that's not pragmatically possible all the time with the cost of support and all this but I think in an ideal world we would be supported but I think so there are pragmatic reasons for having a more kind of I don't want to say linear or checklist but some sort of definition of recovery but also how do we create that without limiting the way that people feel like they can claim it because I think people aren't ignorant of the fact that clinicians and researchers are talking about their recoveries. Like I always find this odd when people think that like research participants or, you know, people with lived experience kind of like live without an awareness of how their recoveries are being framed or talked about, because of course they know how their recoveries are being framed or talked about. Again, like, I think that's a, that's a really problematic assumption and it's quite paternalistic to assume that, um, you know, people with eating disorders aren't aware of the fact that there is a standard of recovery that is expected in, certain clinical spaces and research settings, like if you read a study and people do, like you'll see the criteria that are identified. And if you kind of don't see yourself in that, I think that carries a certain level of kind of legitimacy or expertise that might make you feel small.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: It's a very, um, it's not only a powerful conversation,
0: it's a really vulnerable conversation. You and I have communicated about certain situations where in order for us to get to a common ground, you and I had to expose our vulnerabilities about how we are all conditioned to think certain ways. and vulnerability is the antithesis, obviously, of being in an eating disorder. So I am curious because I would say one of the markers of being recovered is allowing vulnerability into your life. What would you say for just you, Andrea? I'm not talking about everybody. How do you find yourself or say, this is what makes me, Andrea Lamar, feel recovered?
1: Mm -hmm. I've lived in a very kind of ambiguous and sticky relationship with the term recovered for the past, I want to say probably seven or eight years. I went to treatment um, over 10 years ago, but I think at the very beginning I claimed that space of recovery with both hands. And I said, I'm recovered full stop. I, you know, I know that, I'm never going to go back, which I still do. And I think that's kind of a core piece of it. I'm um, never going to go back to that like full horror that was the kind of very active eating disorder. But over time, as I've been doing my research, I've started to question, you know, what is life messiness and what is recovery and how do these things fit together and what kind of coping strategies do I draw on when I am not doing so well or when things are really complicated in my life. My life has been a little bit up and down in terms of the kind of like things that have happened particularly over the past year, but also just doing a PhD and all that business is stressful. Um, This is a really long and windy way to say what gets me to feel recovered, but I think it's tricky. And I I think I used to be so much more certain than I am now, but in some ways, the uncertainty feels more recovery oriented. Um, I think that it is a bit less black and white. And I think my eating disorder in particular was driven a lot by black and whiteness. Um, The, well, it was driven by whiteness in a lot of ways in terms of privilege as well, but (laughs) um, I had very black and white thinking as well. And I think as I've moved away from that black and white thinking, it is actually a sign that I'm doing better because I'm able to question, um, you know, motives for doing things or, you know, what coping mechanisms I'm using. And I'm, I allow myself to make mistakes and I don't let those kind of dictate a kind of downward spiral toward hellishness. Um, And I think that to me, that uncertainty and that okayness with uncertainty is actually a core piece of it. Now that I think about it, I'm kind of just like thinking aloud as I go, but I love it. Yeah. And I think like There are the kind of more pragmatic things. I mean, I think being able to be flexible is a big one for me because I'm quite rigid. But I think it's important to note that the way that I was trained to be recovered is not what was necessarily helpful for recovery in the long term. So like in treatment, the kind of rigidity around um, you need to eat at this time, this time, this time was really helpful to kind of get me to a place where I was like stable enough to, you know, go about my life. But I have actually had to spend a lot of conscious time over the past several years, kind of untethering myself from some of the extra rigidity that was actually born of going through treatment. And that's, I think, one of the kind of core paradoxes of eating disorder treatment is, you know, you kind of have to be a bit more rigid often to kind of get to a place where you can become less rigid. And I think that transitional period toward the less rigidity isn't always the place where we put our resources for support, but is actually a really tricky part of getting to that kind of place of recovery where you feel able to go about your world, like with other folks who haven't had eating disorders or or are doing treatment. And I think that's a real shame in terms of how systems are structured to provide support, because that's really the place where, you know, we need sustained help and support. And I think, I think I muddled a lot through that transition. And I think I still do to a certain extent. Like I had lunch at 1130 the other day and I was like, we who go me because like, for me it's really hard to eat lunch before noon because that's when I was supposed to eat lunch. And like, that sounds like such a silly thing to be excited about when you've been, you know, in recovery for over 10 years. But it, it is those kind of little moments of triumph of just being like, Oh, check myself. And like, I'm going to do this thing because I'm hungry. Like, but that, Yeah, I don't know what to say beyond that, but I think recovery is in those little moments, I guess. You know, I
0: don't take any of my recovery for granted. I do celebrate even small things. And sometimes I think that's what keeps me recovered is remembering, wow, there was a time in my life when I couldn't have done this this w- this whatever this is would not have been possible and now I do it and don't even think about it so sometimes that moment of awareness of like oh I forgot I it's it's it just again it makes me feel even more fabulous about who I've become in this world and how I've navigated through life i'm wondering where or how we can bring in a about the social injustices that you're working on with white privilege, with, you know, obviously we need to bring in health at every size. There's so much. The field is exploding right now, which is incredibly exciting. And it's uncomfortable, which is great because it's that discomfort that creates change. So what are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, um, obviously, I I think a lot about this. And um, I think ultimately, I'm not the kind of voice of authority on it. Um, It's tricky. I think people listen to me about this because I am white, and I'm kind of, I'm educated, and I am, you know, normatively sized, and I am all of these things. I am cisgender. I am heterosexual. So I I embody in many, many ways the stereotypical picture of somebody who has had an eating disorder and who has um, experienced recovery and gone through treatment in the expected ways. Um, And I never take that privilege as, you know, something that I shouldn't be aware of. Like I'm always thinking about that and and what that means for my place in this. Um, I think a lot of my work has been coming to terms with the fact that My whole recovery in some ways reflects these privileges, my access to treatment, my ability to live with my mother at home while I went to day treatment and didn't have to pay for it because I lived in Canada and it was publicly funded and I could access a diagnosis. All of those things were very much tinged in privilege. The very fact that anybody thought that I was struggling at all, I think has a lot to do with my whiteness in addition to the size of my body because I, I got recognized as having had a legitimate quote-unquote eating disorder when I know that so many people struggle to even get that diagnosis. And when they get that diagnosis, they struggle to get to treatment. And then once they struggle to get to treatment, that treatment often has a lot of really harmful things going on, whether it is around body size, whether it is around these kind of ingrained norms of whiteness that just suffuse all of our institutions, um, whether it's around um, you know transphobia in treatment, which is a really big deal, um, whether it's around anything really um, ableism and kind of not recognizing that different bodies need different things um, in the treatment context. These are all um, macro and microaggressions that happen in treatment spaces that I think we really need to be questioning. And I think it's, it's far more than just kind of slapping some diversity on your um, promotional materials. Um, I think it's a really deep and ongoing work um, and commitment to you know hiring folks with lived experiences of harm to, to come and consult with your, your organization and say, you know, here are the ways that you can change. And so I think articulating the ways in which things need to change, I think that really, you know, I can make suggestions based on what I have heard, but I think that really needs to come from deep and ongoing consultation with folks who've been, marginalized and oppressed for so, so long. And I think for me, what's really striking too, is that this isn't new that we know that people struggle to find representations of people with eating disorders who look like them, um, that people are experiencing harm in treatment, that people feel Um, marginalized. I mean, Helen Gramillion wrote a book, Feeding Anorexia, in 2003. And in that book talks about, um, among many other things, the kind of inscribed rigidity of treatment, but also talks about how, you know, people of color are more likely to be diagnosed with um, borderline personality disorder, and then are less likely to be um, allowed to go through treatment. All of these things, like these have been written about since you know the 90s and before becky thompson wrote a hunger so wide and so deep in 1994 well it was published in 1994 i'm sure she was writing it before then um but and it's about you know black women's experiences of eating disorders and i think you know in the 90s other writers too were writing about the experiences of um, black people with eating disorders and other people of color with eating disorders and we've known this we've known that people have eating disorders and we've known that they present a treatment and when they get to treatment, they don't necessarily get the support that they deserve. And I think that we haven't been able to make those shifts is really troubling um, because we need to be making shifts to support those people and not treating them as like quote unquote side special population, but really understanding how, whiteness and thinness and able-bodiedness and transphobia and homophobia and all of these things just infuse everything that we know and do around eating disorders and I think the reason that it's so hard to make the change is because it is kind of a revolution um, and people have a lot hanging on the way that things are done and there's a lot of fear in letting go of those because I think with eating disorders too like fear really drives quite a bit um, in terms of what we do in terms of treatment Like fear of people dying because people do die from eating disorders. And a lot of the time we know treatments don't work maybe as well as we'd like, but it we feel that it's better than nothing. And I think we worry that if we upset the apple cart too much, we will like people will die. Like I think at the at the end of the day it's the fear of people dying and letting people down. Um, but we are letting people down and people are dying. Um but it's hard to see what we don't allow ourselves to see Um, so that was a really long and winding way of saying that i think like we can't not think about um social justice and difference and diversity in the way that we're talking about eating disorders i think that it is far far beyond time i think that as i said this this isn't new it's not me coming in and saying this for the first time and people may listen to me more because of the way that i look and that in itself is a bit of an issue Um, so i'm i'm don't want to say I'm calling for revolution, but I do want to say I'm calling for a revolution. <laughs> well,
0: when you think about it, almost all research was originally done on the single white freshman or sophomore college student or anorexia. So it just kept narrowing down, narrowing down, narrowing down to even one disorder and so that is what society thinks about when you say eating disorder
1: a hundred percent I mean like every time I say I do eating disorder research it's like oh you know you know they say like oh I've got the opposite problem or something like that and I'm like oh my gosh like there's no opposite problem like (laughs) I know like you just Ah, and like there's this polarization of body size and just lack of recognition that you know body size doesn't tell us that much about anything um and there's yeah, just a whole lot of kind of societal ignorance, I guess, around eating disorders, and so even getting eating disorders beyond anorexia recognized sometimes feels like a bit of a uphill battle and then kind of recognizing that eating disorders don't have this look is kind of an ongoing thing I mean I remember in my master's reading articles about the representations of eating disorders and just reading about the you know the extreme white thinness of it and um, you know it's not gone away to the extent that we maybe would have hoped Um, I mean the the film to the bone came out um, a couple years ago. And I feel like that really replicated a lot. I mean, maybe there was some movement in some spaces, but still it was centered around a thin white girl. and And that's the kind of form that provokes interest, I guess there's like a weird fascination and then that's problematic too. And then we always in research, we also tend to kind of position it as doing research on people. Whereas I would love to see more research of doing things with um, you know we need to be integrating people with lived experience into the design of our research studies and not just those who've kind of quote-unquote performed as expected um, but those who've had bad experiences i think those are kind of a core group to tap into and um, you know the very questionnaires that we use the very kind of like metrics that we use those are all designed on a population that doesn't actually represent people who present to services or who, um, have experiences of eating disorders. And so we're missing a whole lot, um, in these conversations and we need to be doing better myself included. Like, I mean, I think it's important for me to not pretend like my research has been perfect in any way, um, or hasn't replicated whiteness because it has. And I think this is something that I'm constantly striving to do better at, um, and finding ways to try to act in allyship with, um, people who are. Um, really, really marginalized and actively harmed by the way that things are.
0: Mm -hmm. That's, and I'm not, please hear me when I say, I'm not saying you do this, Andrea, but that's what is this like underneath trauma that doesn't get spoken about. People are actively harmed by the way eating disorders have been presented. It's a trauma on top of a trauma.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so how could you feel that you could claim the space of recovery if that's the thing? Like if you do amazing, like fantastic, like if that's a word that resonates with you and you can claim that, I think that's fantastic. But I don't think it's a, it's a, I don't think we should take that for granted that everyone would understand or access that category in the same way.
0: Absolutely. Do you ever find yourself While doing research, because I know researchers, you are knee deep in this. Do you ever find yourself getting it all triggered? Are there things that you're, you know, exploring, looking up and suddenly researching and then suddenly saying, I haven't thought about that in a while?
1: Yeah, mostly I have found um, the opposite effect. Um, I think, particularly in the beginning, just reading all the articles about all of the terrible stuff about eating disorders is like, oh, goodness, well certainly like don't want that to happen to me um so I think like especially in the beginning it was really actually helpful for me in my recovery I think as time has gone on like it's just like I'm kind of used to reading about the stuff I think in, for me I chose not to go into clinical practice so I, I'm a I'm not a practitioner um I'm just a researcher which is actually fairly rare um in the eating disorder space like a lot of people do both or do um clinician but I'm sure there are more researchers that I just haven't met. Um, But anyway, I chose to do research as opposed to clinical because I I do take on people's kind of emotions a lot. And I was worried that it would be like not the best space for me in clinical, which is not to say that I don't think that people with lived experience should do clinical work because I think that is... Um, a really problematic assumption, and I think that people with lived experience who do clinical work are fantastic clinicians, but it wasn't for me. Um, and I think knowing that boundary was really important for me, not to say that I necessarily would have been triggered, but I think it w- it would have been like really emotionally hard for me to kind of hear that on the daily. So if I do research, I do interview people and so sometimes hearing their stories is very affecting but um, as a researcher, I can kind of um, Decide when to engage with that and when not. Like I can set times that really work for me. I'm not expected to kind of solve those problems in the moment. Although sometimes I wish that I could. Um, and mostly, I've uh, I've talked to people who have been experiencing um, the way that I've framed it for studies is usually um, doing significantly better than they had been during a period of acute distress. Because I try to avoid pre like predefining what recovery is and then kind of engage with people about it. So I tend to be engaging with people who are kind of reflecting back on their experiences as opposed to during the acute phase of their illness. Um, Not that I never would, but this is a really long windy um, way of saying it, but no, not really. Although um, it's comes up, I guess, in like unexpected ways. So recently I've been working on a project where it's about weight stigma more generally, and it's about COVID nineteen weight stigma specifically. And I have found, while analyzing um, like data that already exists out on the internet around the way that people are talking about this, I find that sometimes I'm like a little bit like oh, like this hits me at a place that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because it's like just very overtly stigmatizing stuff that I'm analyzing. Um, so that kind of stuff can be a little bit tough. But research is funny. I think things hit you in places that like you would never expect like I found some of the hardest work that I've done hasn't been like eating disorder related but has kind of like made me feel feel the feels um in a real way it has been around like reproductive health like so it's not yeah research is funny you you sometimes think oh I should be extra cautious because I have lived experience of dealing with this thing but it's not always the thing that you think that will kind of activate you I guess um And not always activate you in the ways that you would have thought. That's a really vague answer, but basically the answer is yes and no.
0: (laughs) So, but what I want to say is, again, going into our little bucket of how we define recovery is knowing yourself and knowing yourself and honoring what you, what your needs are and saying, you know what? I'm recovered enough to know that it wouldn't be in my best interest to do clinical work. And as a recovered person, I have choices in my life. And my choice is to completely focus on research. Yeah. I
1: also just think I'd maybe not be the best clinician. (laughs)
0: That is a whole, not- we need to have a podcast about people that don't think they'd be good clinicians and dietitians because I think that, that definitely the um, imposter syndrome does happen. But I, knowing you, Andrea, do think you would be a great clinician.
1: Uh, Thank you. I did have a moment um, during my Ph.D. where I didn't want to finish school and I thought about going back to med school and then becoming a psychiatrist to kind of like try to be like a feminist psychiatrist from the inside. (laughs) But then I thought, oh, I don't really want to do school for like eight to 10 more years. Um, So I decided to grow up instead. Not that people who go to school forever haven't grown up, but it is a very I I loved being a student. So I did kind of so I decided to never leave school in a different way by becoming a lecturer. (laughs)
0: I think it's fantastic. You know, it's interesting. I didn't love school until... I decided to go to school for psychology and I didn't go back to graduate school for psychology until I was 29 or 28. I was in a totally different career. So that's another thing about being recovered. You find what you're passionate about, to be honest with you. And I'm not saying this as like uh, you know, negative about myself. I'm not a very good student. And I'm, and again, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I never found school to be, interesting, exciting. I I was that person until I started having passion to be a therapist. And then I loved school.
1: Yeah. It is about finding those things, isn't it? Yeah. I, I always loved school, but there are things that I loved more than others. I think in like a high school, I was kind of just oriented toward like, I just like being right. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and then in grad school, weirdly, I went into like this total, like sphere of like uncertainty and like knowing that I'll never be right. So it was like a funny switch. Like in high school, I loved like math and things that I could kind of solve. Um, and then I think... Personally, sometimes I push myself most into things that make me uncomfortable um, and that do kind of bring up uncertainty because a lot of my training has been kind of like feminist psychologies and feminist sociologies and all of this. Um, and a lot of it is around knowing that there is not necessarily a singular truth. And um, in fact, like that lack of certainty has been really, I think, inspiring in terms of knowing that the work will never really be done. And that's actually like a good thing thing, I guess, because to keep questioning and to keep critiquing is kind of like a core of what I do and the way that I now orient to the world. But I think it's funny because I, I think personally, I am actually a person who likes a degree of certainty, but professionally and the places that I've pushed myself have gone toward this kind of constant learning, never being certain type place. So I think I've, maybe like subconsciously pushed myself into something that will continue to challenge me forever. Um, so that I don't get bored, I guess. But I think
0: that's such a wonderful way to be in the world. I, I don't ever want to stop learning. I don't ever want to stop fine-tuning my craft. I don't ever, I don't ever want to think I'm quote-unquote there because there doesn't exist. And I tried that in my eating disorder. And in my eating disorder, it didn't exist. You know that famous, like, if I could just get to a certain weight, then everything, everything in my life will be perfect, right? And then, of course, you get to that weight. doesn't happen. Okay, if I could just get... You're never there. Once you actually drop into that, it's a really beautiful journey. I'm always growing. I'm changing ideas of what I want to do with the foundation of what I work from. You know, my I, I work from a humanistic and a relational model, but I I grow from all of it all the time and that's being recovered too. The other thing is knowing that the uncertainty is not as always going to be turbulent. There is turbulence in our life, especially when we're growing in a new direction. But when as a recovered person, you can say, all right, I'm going to buckle myself in it's going to be a little turbulent, but I have supports to help me through it. I know I don't have to do it perfectly. I know that something is going to happen, even if it's not the direction I had anticipated. I
1: think like, yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, early on in my recovery, I think I kind of felt like I had to like grip my teeth and do everything on my own and be this like hyper individualistic person. And I think in some ways, I didn't have recovery really defined for me. And so that's kind of what I assumed that it was because I was kind of buying into this like social norm around like individuality and kind of like being in it for myself. But I feel like as time has gone on, the kind of leaning into supports and kind of like asking for help and kind of recognizing my own limits has been something that I've really had to learn. And I'm not sure if it's just like a virtue of growing up as well, because my, my recovery has kind of coincided with um like my it coincided with my 20s and then into my 30s now um and i think like that's also a time when you kind of like learn that you can't do everything on your own a lot of the time or hopefully you do um but i think like seeing that as a strength and not a weakness like the asking for help and the kind of like reaching out to supports um doesn't reflect kind of a failure in any way but actually a real win like for me that feels like a core part of my experience of recovery has been actually knowing that I can't do it all on my own, and and that's not a problem, um, because life is turbulent, um, particularly lately. Um, but it always has been for some people, and I think the fact that it feels more turbulent for me lately again kind of reflects more of my privilege, because to be honest, like my life has been pretty good. Like, yes, I had an eating disorder, but like. I've followed a very kind of normative trajectory and, and I've benefited from my privilege so much along the way that sometimes when turbulence comes up, it feels like a big like shock. Um, and that it's weird to think of like a shock like that as privilege, but it is tied to that experience. Um, but still, I think knowing that I don't have to do everything on my own um, and I can reach out is both a a gift and a privilege.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like there was something that motivated your recovery process? Was there someone, something, what, what got you to start moving to the other side?
1: Um, well, in terms of seeking treatment, I just like really couldn't carry on with what I was doing. Um, I had to move home. I dropped out of school. Like, this are the things that like people wouldn't know about me really, but I did drop, I think I've mentioned it probably on some other podcast, but I dropped out of school because I couldn't do it. Um, I was having a lot of episodes. Um, and so medically I, I kind of had to go home. I was in day treatment, so I wasn't like super medically compromised, but still I had to do everyday treatment. So I, I moved home. I kind of like let go of everything. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to go back to school. Um, but that didn't really motivate my recovery so much as my treatment seeking. Um, so I sought treatment and then I kind of just went through the motions more for other people for a little bit. Um, because, you know, I wanted my mom to be happy and I wanted, you know, everything, I just wanted, every, and I, I liked the other people in treatment and I didn't want to let them down. Um, that was like a weird motivation at the beginning, but that's fine. You do what you have to do. Um, and then I think, kind of the broader recovery when I actually felt motivated to recover, just, I guess, to feel better was when I started noticing that, um, you know, doing the things that were promoting my recovery were making me feel better mentally and physically. Um, and then knowing that I wanted that for my life, I guess, knowing that I didn't want to feel um, physically and mentally tortured forever. Um yeah, so this kind of like, I guess, internal sensation of just wanting more, but I didn't, I didn't really have any goals for my life at that point, which sounds like really weird, but like, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went, I transferred to a different university after so that I could live at home with my mom. And I, you know, I thought maybe I'd be a journalist. And then I thought maybe I'd like, you know, do research in like sociology area. And then I wrote a research proposal in my fourth year of university about um, eating disorders as a social justice issue. Um, And then I, from there, I was like, oh, I could actually research eating disorders. So that's, that was a kind of like funny like trajectory, but yeah, like I didn't, I didn't come out of eating disorder treatment and be like, I'm going to be an eating disorder researcher. I'm going to, you know, change the world. I'm going to like put my, you know, be a part of this world. I just, I knew that I didn't want to feel awful anymore um, at least not in the ways that I had been feeling awful. I think I was a bit naive about the way that the world can kind of make you feel awful for other reasons. But um, at the time I didn't want to feel awful because of my eating disorder. And so that's kind of why I did that. I guess I realized that there could be something else um, that I didn't need to do the things that I was doing to be a human being. Yeah.
0: It makes me think when you just said, I didn't come out of treatment and say, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to this. And what it makes me think of is the misunderstanding that people have about how someone is supposed to be right after treatment. Your process is kind of just beginning. Like I've had clients, so when I've, when I've run residential programs and, you know, I've run family groups and parents or supports or whatnot have been like, I can't wait till my daughter or loved one or sister, you know, and by the way, I only speak about women because it was a, it was a female facility. Um, I can't wait till they leave here and they're recovered and they're, they get back into life. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you are Totally, and for a disappointment. And you are setting her up for very unrealistic expectations. I always look at residential as like triage, like we're stopping the bleeding at this point. We're just getting somebody, you know, nourished and medically stable and emotionally stable and giving them the tools to then start the work. Then they go to PHP and they are barely in the world because they're in treatment all day and just a little bit at home, right? Then intensive outpatient where you're still, you know, five, five days a week going like people just assume, or by the way, I think they have the hope they want their and put insert loved one, child, whatever. They want to hope that as soon as they recover, as soon as they leave treatment, that they're recovered. And it, couldn't be farther from the truth.
1: Yeah. I think there's this interesting assumption that like treatment outcome equals recovery. Um, And I get really frustrated with this in the literature and in presentations as well. It's kind of one of my little bugbears, but I'm a recovery researcher. So what do you want? (laughs) I love it. I want to hear more about it. (laughs) But I think like, yeah, it's not the same thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like leaving, like, I I mean, I don't want to sound unhelpful by saying that, but like, I do think that we can't just assume that putting someone through treatment is going to equal recovery, because especially because it's not always a focus in treatment. Like, I think a lot of clinicians will talk to their patients about recovery, but like how they do that and um, the extent to which they do that or what that looks like will be vastly, vastly different. I'm working on a, a study right now about how. Um, clinicians talk about recovery to their patients and and a lot of them do. And they say that, you know, one of the things that's coming out is that it is to instill that hope. But I think there wasn't a kind of assumption in that data or in anything that I've heard of that, you know, just simply going through treatment is going to equal recovery. Like recovery is a bit more than that like it's not just kind of like getting stable it's kind of experiencing life and and that life is going to be complex um and it's going to be tinged with people's context and i think um you know i i worked with a a psychiatrist um in canada for a while and she would say that um you know people get really good at eating food on a tray you know what i mean in a lot of the treatment programs and so she was designing like a a more collaborative um program um, for adolescents and to try to to look at the kind of like more life pieces like what would recovery look like in their lives um, because I think yeah we just can't assume that just going through treatment is going to equal recovery especially if we don't work with that person to figure out what recovery would look like I was really encouraged in the data to see that you know when clinicians would say like it needs to be collaboratively developed with people because we can't I don't think we necessarily can predetermine what recovery is for that person. Going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, really, like it is so contextualized and personalized that we can't just say like this outcome equals recovery because it's going to look different for each person. And so the kind of like crude metrics that we have, um, I mean, I don't want to call them crude metrics because they have research behind them, but you know, they are again, built on certain populations. Uh, I'm just saying all the controversial things. Um, but, Um, we can't assume that fitting that equals recovery. It really just equals fitting that outcome criteria or, you know, standard deviation from the norm on an EDEQ score. You know what I mean? Like that, that is a thing and maybe it has some utility, but it isn't recovery to me, at least not the way that I would think about recovery.
0: I also think that people don't understand that the recovery process is not just about the food. It's not just about, can you feed yourself? Can you refrain from binging and purging? Can you refrain from binging? It's about the food and it is about depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse. So somebody may be very successful going through treatment, but they still have a lot of work before they can even function in the world to get a full-time job because their depression is so intense and the function of the eating disorder was to numb yourself out from the depression so now we've got all this other stuff to look at so that's another thing about the recovery process
1: yeah and i think um so two things i was just worried that what i said made it seem like you know you didn't do amazing if you got through treatment um which i think still it is amazing to get through treatment for many reasons. Um, and then secondly, the thing that I was thinking about with with regard to what you just said is I think it's also important too that we don't assume that recovery means either like going back to the exact same life that you had before or achieving some sort of like normative success as we know it. And this is what I worry maybe the most about with my own recovery story is that I don't want someone to think they have to go and get a PhD to call themselves like a successfully recovered human, you know, like, cause you don't. So I have two things to say to that.
0: So I have, again, often sat in many family groups when a parent will say, I just want my daughter back the way she was before the eating disorder. And I say, no, you don't. Because that young soul, didn't know how to talk about their fears, their concerns, their shame, their judgment. They didn't know how to handle their anxiety. So you don't want just to go back to who they were because then they're going to end up right back here in treatment right? The other thing is, is just like you said, some people, I have worked with some clients and they have said to me, I'm 30 years old. I should not be a camp counselor. You know, the shoulds. And I say, what do you want to be? And they're like a camp counselor. I'm like, then that's, if you're going to use the word should, I'm going to, I'm going to should you right back. This is, being recovered is by saying, I don't have to get a PhD. I don't have to have a, you know, fortune 500 job. I have to do what makes me happy. And that will be my definition of success, of living a fulfilled life. So that's the other part about it. It's not going back into the norm. If the norm is what got you in the eating disorder in the first place.
1: Exactly. And I think that's why it's so important for us to kind of shift broader societal narratives around success and, you know, what that means um, in people's lives and to work for, you know, better social structures that will allow people to do the things that nourish them as opposed to the things that kind of like drive them into the ground and into behaviors that lead them down a path of hellishness for lack
0: of a better word yes it's so true it's so true andrea i am sorry to say this but we're gonna have to start coming to a close for the episode is there anything you want to say i am going to ask a final question but before that is there anything you want to say that i didn't ask you or something that you want to share
1: no, I think this has been great. I I feel like always these things go so fast. It's hard to believe it's been the full time, but, um, yeah, hopefully that was helpful in some regard. And I think, I think the tricky thing about talking about recovery in the ways that I do is that, um, I don't want it to come off as unhopeful or, um, anything like that. It is hopeful. It's, it's also hopeful for a future that, um, holds a lot more equity um, in terms of access to all of these things, including the category of recovery. So I think my hopes extend beyond individualistic ones and toward kind of a systemic change that would support different recoveries.
0: Which is incredibly hopeful, incredibly hopeful and helpful. So Andrea, it's just been wonderful. So of course I do have to ask my final question, which is Andrea? If someone were to write about you on the bathroom stall, what would it say?
1: Oh, I feel like mm, mm, I should have prepared for this. I did.
0: Did I catch you off guard? You checked this question. <laughs>
1: I did. I know. And I, I, I checked it, and then I, I left off. Um, I now I can't. I can't remember what I would have said. Let's think about something together. Um, What can we say? For a critical time call, Andrea. (laughs) That is
0: fantastic. You all heard it here. For a critical time call, Andrea. That is fantastic. That's right. Can't help it. Yep. Andrea, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Karen. Great. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with recovered professionals and I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guests information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bytes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google podcast. All right, everybody be well. And thanks for listening to my bite for the week.